Welcome to a brand new edition of Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. My name is Paige Nick and I'm the host of both our regular Book Choice that you've hopefully come to know and love over the years and now an exciting new edition and edition for the show which we're calling Book Choice Publisher's Choice. Every third Tuesday at lunchtime we'll be welcoming a few big name publishers to join us on the show and tell us what great new books they've been working on. They'll bring us reviews, interviews, and authors, behind-the-scenes looks at what goes into publishing some of your favorite books, as well as information on upcoming launches in your area that you can hopefully add to your calendar. Let's just say, if you didn't have a massive to-read pile before, you're sure to grow a fantastic book wish list now. Over the weeks, we'll bring you something for everyone, from fiction to non-fiction, young adult books, something for the kids, cookbooks, and even hopefully some poetry and short stories. Whatever you like to read or whoever you need to buy a gift for, we'll be sure to cover something for you. So stay tuned. Your dial is in the right place on Fine Music Radio Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. For our first ever Publisher's Choice segment, we're excited to welcome Penguin Random House to the show. Penguin is the world's largest English language trade publisher, which if you think about it is really impressive. So now every few weeks starting today, the Penguin Random House team will join us on Publisher's Choice to give us a window into what they've got coming up on the shelves. Welcome Viz Chetty, Sales Manager at Penguin Random House, bringing us the best of Penguin's current fiction, non-fiction and children's books. Good morning and thank you for having me on the show, Paige. I'm so excited to say I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of the amazing titles that we have on offer at the moment from Penguin Random House. All of the titles that I'm going to talk about now are actually available. They're in store. You can't miss them. They um, should be sent in every store. So when you go to your bookstores or if you're looking online, you'll probably see these titles pop up. So without further ado, the first title that I want to talk about is Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. Uh, for some of you that may know Kate Atkinson, she did an amazing series called the Brody series, which was a, which was a big, big uh, selection of books for her. This new one is actually a standalone. It's the first standalone novel by Kate Atkinson. And the story is set in 1926. It's eight years after the end of the Great War in England, and England is still recovering from that. Um, and as you know, the Roaring Twenties has kicked off. And what you have is everything that you've seen in movies and TV, dazzling nightlife, um, it's lots of alcohol, lots of parties, and we have a character by the name of Nellie Coker, who's just come out of prison. Uh, she's been um, arrested a few times, and she is now uh, a, a nightclub owner in London, in Soho. And she's very successful. And to be successful in this world, think pe Peaky Blinders, and she's a matriarch, so she has to be double ruthless. And she gets what she wants, she knows what she wants, and all she's trying to do is uh, provide for her six children. Single parent, that's hard enough. So lots of things happen in this novel in terms of people who come out of the woodwork trying to encroach into her territory and, and get into her empire, and everything goes from there. So it's a fantastic novel. I think it's one of, it's one of those novels where there's a lot of characters, but she's done it in such a beautiful, eloquent way, eloquent way in that she manages those characters really well, and you 
sort of stay in the loop of what she's trying to say. So it's a great book. You have not Kate Atkinson. You can pick this one up and start there, but she's an amazing author. So Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. Right. The next one is a fabulous book by the legendary John Boyne. He's given us many, many great books. This is actually a sequel, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. If you haven't read it, um, it would be advisable to pick that one up. If, even if you haven't read it, I think you can still enjoy this novel. So this novel, All the Broken Places by John Boyne, is a continuation of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. So it picks up years and years later where one of the main characters in the first book, his sister, Gretel, is now 92 years old. She lives in London, and she's far away from post-war Germany and everything in between. So this book covers her life from the moment the boy in the striped pajamas ended up until present day. And it's all about the myths of Greta, the main character. And I, I say that in a very affectionate way because there's a lot of things that we didn't know about her, obviously, from the first book, because she wasn't a central character. She was a she was a, a main character, but not a central character. So you learn about what happened after the, the end of that novel and all the things that herself and her mother had gone through since then. So he does it in a really, really fabulous way. And I think that if you read this book, most people will say they cannot believe how good it is, and they didn't expect it to be that good. But... It's great. It's it's a really, really well-written, back-to-basics. It's interesting. It has a compelling story. And it's one of those books that you put it aside, and then as soon as you get off from work or you're sitting in the evening, you just want to get back into it. So that book, All the Broken Places by John Boyne, uh, is it's out now, and you'll find it in store. Right. The next one, um, I've decided to break the mold a little bit. I'm going to give you Profiler Diaries. Um, Two by Gerard Labuschagne. Uh, Dr. Gerard Labuschagne is a criminal profiler. Uh, he's covered more than 110 uh, murder murder cases um, and all bizarre cases in South African history. He he was a successor to the legendary Mickey Pistorius, who was a who was one of the most popular uh, criminal profilers in South Africa. So in his time with the SAPS, he covered all these cases. And years and years later now, he's basically distilling all these cases into uh, into books. We've done a previous uh, edition, so if you haven't picked up the first one, uh, it was just called Profiler Diaries 1. He gives you the cases, the psychology behind it, what actually happened, how they read the suspect. And then the really interesting thing is he takes you into the court case. It goes into how they actually managed to make these charges stick. So it's, it's good and well to catch the suspect, but he says it's, it's harder to make it work in court. So he covers another six cases in this book, Profiler Diaries 2. He covers cases like the Neisner murder, Brain the Stalker, and so forth. So you've got some really interesting cases. If you like books on true crime or that sort of book, this is the one for you. You don't have to have read the first one, but you're going to want to read the first one if you pick this one up first. It doesn't matter. You just read it in any order because each case is on its own. So it's a fantastic book. He is just an amazing profiler and a great mind. So that's Profiler Diaries 2 by Dr. Gerard Lebuskakny. All right, and then the last one I'm going to give you is The Bullet That Missed by Richard Osman. It's number three in 
Thursday Murder Club series. If you haven't read the series, please do. You start from the first two. It's perfect holiday reading, and it's the reason why I picked this book today. I think that you guys would really enjoy it for as we go into December. And I think that it's, it's a bit of the, the success of the series is mainly for mainly for the fact that it was escape escapist fiction. So it's just to get your mind off whatever you think about and just have a little fun. And the story is around these people who live in a retirement home, but they all, you know, came from different careers. One was an ex MI five agent, one was a psychologist, one was a nurse. So they all come with different skill sets which makes it really interesting. But they're really coming along in the age now. They're much older now. So that's Cooper's Chase. And they start this club where they look at cold cases. Um, and it, initially it was just sort of for fun, and then it became it actually became part of their world, and they got involved in these investigations, and it was just shenanigans from from the get go. So in this one, the third book, it is all about a ten year old cold case that's obviously you know gone quiet now, and the and the the main character in that is Elizabeth, and she's the one that's a former MIA operative. It comes across this case about this woman named Bethany White, who was a journalist, and she apparently committed suicide driving a car, her car, off a cliff. There was nobody around, and obviously the case went cold 10 years later. So now, the local TV personality by the name of Mike Waghorn, who used to actually work with Bethany, is introduced into the gang and becomes this key player in this mystery, and they're trying to solve this case. But over and above all the usual characters that you have, you have a whole bunch of new characters in there, which make it really fun and entertaining. So the book is called The Bullet That Missed. It's the third one in the Richard Osmond series. If you have read the first two, you're going to love this one because you've got brand new characters in there and they're all just as entertaining. So there's lots of humor, lots of fun, and it's a great mystery for the, um, the holidays. And that's me. That's all the selection I have at the moment. I will be back in the next month with some brand new books. And thank you very much. For more info on the titles Viz mentioned and many other books, visit penguinrandomhouse.co.za or follow them on social media. Tell me, babe, what's new? How's the scene with you? Gee, it's good to see you there. So, how you'll never know Gee, it's good to see you, babe You walked in, lights went on All over my face You lit up the place And you've been gone just too long now So tell me, babe, what's new you're glad to see me too Hey, my world is spinning Now I know I'm winning You stay home now Don't ever roam now And I'll say, babe, it's so good to see you
was What's New, sung by Max Bygraves, and you're tuned into Book Choice, our Publisher's Choice edition, right here on Fine Music Radio, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. All the music for today's show was selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods. Thank you for the musical ear you bring to our books, you guys. We're joined next by Vanessa Levenstein with a highly anticipated interview. Mark Winkler is the author of a number of critically acclaimed novels, and his latest is no exception. It's called The Errors of Dr. Brown. And interestingly, this book was also published by Penguin Random House. Welcome to the show, Vanessa and Mark. The Errors of Dr. Brown by Mark Winkler was not an easy read. It was an excellent read. But the subject matter leaves little room for exhalation. Set in Bury St. Edmunds in 1662, two women are accused of witchcraft. The reader is immersed in a world of barrels of herring, ale, ink pots, frogs, hypocrisy and superstition, a thriving environment for patriarchy, duplicity and hysteria. Joining us today on Publisher's Choice is the author Mark Winkler. Welcome. Thank you. To give our listeners some background, Dr. Brown is to quote a physician and author and examiner of the natural world. He is summoned to be both an inquisitor and witness in one of England's last witch trials. He had the potential to rise to greatness, yet was he a product of his time or just a person grappling with his own demons? His, his time was a very interesting time and maybe that's part of the problem. He was kind of on the cusp of the age of reason and he had one foot firmly planted in the old world of religion and superstition, he had a very deep faith. Uh, very much a follower of the Anglican Church, and at the same time is trying to wrestle with this new thing called reason and rational thinking and scientific thinking. Isaac Newton was 19 at the time of the trial, so this whole wave was about to take off, and he was just on the cusp of it. And I think he struggled um, as a historical figure, which he was, to come to terms with those two competing, clashing things of science and religion. And you really do capture that struggle. You capture his internal world and his struggle within this crazy world in which he's living. Mm. What drew you to the subject? It was kind of serendipitous. I found this pamphlet online, went down the rabbit hole on the internet, and there was a scanned pamphlet. I found out it was the only remaining transcript of the trial, quite amateurishly written. It was only about 17 or 18 pages long, and it formed the intro to what was a catalogue of other books, so it was the sensationist ad for a whole lot of other books. But the trial itself seemed so interesting, it wasn't like extraordinary in the scheme of witch trials, but there was a paragraph in there that mentioned this guy Thomas Brown, who was a witness, and I thought that would be quite an interesting voice to tell the story, because it was a very interesting story. Quite an interesting point of view from a witness's point of view, you know, and that really got me thinking. And then I researched this guy and I found out how little I actually knew and this huge gap in my own knowledge about this guy who was a very respected thinker and writer of his time who I'd never heard of. 
That brings me to my next question. How did you research him? And did you write this during COVID, which I would imagine travel was limited? I did. So it was all mostly online research. There's very little hard copies of stuff here, and it was during COVID, so I couldn't have got into a, a library even if I'd wanted to. And I had planned to go to Norwich and Bury St. Edmunds as part of the research, and I just couldn't. There was no travel. It was impossible. And in retrospect, I was, I'm actually very happy about that because... Google Earth showed me Starbucks and Topshop and McDonald's and the towns aren't, you know, they're like any other European town these days. They're not like they were 400 years ago. So it was easy in a way for me not to go and create a sense of place out of online research, old maps, artwork, illustrations, anecdotes, other peripheral stories from those towns of the time. There's a paragraph I'd like you to read and the question that's going to follow is, do you think disillusionment led to his later actions? And we did cover this earlier when you said he was a product of his times. At the door I gave the constable two pennies and instructed him to fetch bread and ale for the women. And though I knew he would keep the money for himself unless I stood there to witness him complete his errand, I had not the stomach for it. Do you think that paragraph marks the beginning of the end for him? I think so. There's a turning point where he never really reaches but it builds up until right at the end when he understands what's actually going on and how he's been should I say manipulated but he's been stonewalled by his so-called colleagues in the legal fraternity during this trial and he's up against this bizarre manifestation of superstition coupled with religion what's interesting about this trial is there was no direct involvement of the clergy so there are no priests and people lurking and dictating things but there's this belief structure that's this overriding thing that is itself manipulated into what happens you know what what the powers that be actually want to get out of it so one shouldn't speak to an author before an interview which of course i did because yes. i couldn't resist and it came up that you weren't a great hillary mantel fan but i just have to say that reading this book i thought how did a South African author who wrote a seminal, brilliant, the brilliant book, Due South of Copenhagen, morph into Hilary Mantel? How did you keep the language consistent? How did you do it? Well, it's my sixth book, and after my first book, I promised myself I'd never write the same book again, which sounded like a good idea at the time. But what it's done is it's made me explore different voices, different styles, different language, different use of language each time I do something. And Due South of Copenhagen is very different to this, as you know. And I guess it's like, I'm not a great musician, but I guess it's like finding a composer, finding a key to write in and then staying true to that key throughout, you know, or tuning a guitar to a piano, however you want to look at it. And then once you hit that thing, and there's a lot of false starts on the way until the tuning is right. And then it becomes the way I was writing. It, it wasn't an effort to sustain it to the point that I was starting to reply to emails in my fake <laughs> 17th century <laughs> English. Yeah. Very cool. The book is set in 1662, and yet we live in a world where women are still fighting for their rights. What do you think is the modern equivalent of a witch hunt, a witch trial? I think it's, yes, it does affect women a lot still. I think women are a little better off than they were then, thank goodness. Um, there's still a lot of that going on. It's quite odd that Sir Matthew Hale, the bad guy in this book, the judge, was actually quoted by a Supreme Court judge in America in, in the process of overturning the Roe versus Wade um, abortion laws. And he held up Matthew Hale 
as the paragon, the, 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 the moral compass for this whole thing. The voice of reason. Yeah, when Matthew Hurl himself was known to be this right-wing misogynist, a terrible person. So, yes, there's still that effect on women, but beyond that, the fake news is still going on. The destruction of reputation today by social media, you know, that that kind of thing, which then was gossip and hearsay. And the parallels are... That struck me as really astonishing because we actually haven't come that far at all in 400 years, you know. That's what struck me when reading this book because you're reading about something disturbing and you try and comfort yourself as a reader thinking, oh, well, it's a book. Oh, well, it's not happening. But in some ways it is. It's yeah. a different level, but it really is. The theme of reckoning, owning one's errors, is quite pertinent to me two weeks before the Jewish Day of Atonement mm. that we are we, we're discussing this. And Max in Due South also has his Day of Reckoning. Do you think writers write to come to terms with their own demons? Mm, I mean, uh, the advice to writers is always don't treat it as therapy. But I think that to make any story authentic, you put a lot of yourself in there, even if it's not autobiographical. You know, you you end up transliterating a lot of your emotions, a lot of your experiences, your ways of thinking onto the page. So, I guess in that way, yes, it is. It is, in a way, therapeutic. Yeah, without hanging out all the dirty laundry. You've explored many different worlds. Where's the next world you're going to? And you said yourself you don't write the same book twice. Yeah, so that's left me a little stumped at the moment. I actually have nothing on the cards. I've played with a book that began with an idea for a structure and a kind of story shape rather than the actual story. And a certain Damon Gulgut preempted me by coming out with a book that did exactly what I'd been planning. And it depressed me so much I haven't been able to sit down at the keyboard since then, but I'm sure I'll pick up again in time. Well, you mentioned the word keyboard. You're sitting in a studio at Fine Music Radio. Think of your favorite composer. Mm. Composer? Mm, it's the kind of cliched Chopin, but a Mozart. Okay, so Beethoven. That, may that be the subject for your next book, inspired by your interview <laughs> yes. at Fine Music Radio. That's an idea, yeah. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, really, if you want to get stuck into meaty, good, well-written books, The Errors of Dr. Brown, highly recommended. And while you're at it, due south of Copenhagen, there are the only two I've read, but apparently all the books are fantastic by Mark Winkler. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Just a short note that this interview was recorded shortly before the death of Hilary Mantel. It's been a great loss to the literary world. So they say I myself don't talk about a new world in the morning New world in the morning, that's today And I can feel a new tomorrow coming on And I don't know why I have to make a song
since he was 20 I met that man when he was 81 He said too many folks just stand and wait Until the morning But don't they know tomorrow never comes And he would feel it was New World in the Morning, sung by Eve Boswell, and you're tuned into Book Choice, Publisher's Choice, on Fine Music Radio, with me, your host, Paige Nick. We have another interesting interview up next, and now we move to non-fiction. Twanji Kalula joins us to interview T.J. Stratum, who's the author of Kurs Becker's Billions, another fantastic new release from Penguin Random House. Kurs Becker has amassed one of the largest fortunes ever by a South African. I'm curious to hear if TJ Stratum managed to get to the bottom of how he did it. I wouldn't mind making a couple of billions myself, so I'm taking notes through this one. So Kurt Becker is arguably one of South Africa's most successful entrepreneurs, but he's also incredibly private. Financial journalist TJ Stratum is back with his second book. It's a biography of Kurt Becker, an unauthorized biography at that. TJ, why did you think it was important for you to write this book? I twenty yeah, so Chris to me is a is a fascinating story and, and I was worried no one else is going to tell it if if it's not gonna be me. Because uh you know, men of his generation often are too humble, so they wouldn't write it down themselves. And if if it doesn't get told, you know, there's lots of lessons that might go by the wayside that young entrepreneurs or people in South Africa could benefit from. So that's why I went in. Speaking of those lessons, I was so interested by the format of the book. You've kind of structured it as a kind of like a how-to. We're obviously not going to go out and make Kurt Baker's billions, but I was just interested. Why did you decide on that format? Well, again, I, I was I was interested in success recipe, and whether he says there's a recipe or not, I think there must be some cooking habits that he that he has, some kitchen habits that that you can follow, and some of them I think. Certainly, I mean, even when negotiating your next contract with an employer, you can use that. Some of the others, I mean, it's probably difficult. He was more of a of a product of his time, and and uh, he had a, he had certain opportunities that might not be repeated. But you know, identified fifteen steps basically, 
And I think a lot of those could be quite beneficial for, for some, some of the readers. And in terms of the writing process, was it quite easy to identify and pull through those 15 steps? Were they quite obvious or did you kind of look at and say, look at the critical turning points? Kind mm. of? Some of them, some of them were, were easier. Uh, so mm. there's one step, get paid like an entrepreneur, mm. which is a, I think is, is obvious or, you know, even backer needs mm. a backer. So th- those things to me seemed quite obvious, but some of the other ones, I only sort of cottoned on to them after reading everything that I could find on the guy and, and, mm. and, and talking to a lot of people about him. And then, then they sort of crystallize out and you, you can see them. So, you know, I th- also think people who know him well and maybe Chris himself, you mm. know, so it was unauthorized. Mm. They might have other perspectives on what uh, you know what his success recipe is, and, and I'd love to stimulate the debate about mm. that. Yeah, but we're definitely interested in why he made it so big, how he got to pocket such a big fortune mm. from the rise of Nasper. What's so interesting to me about Chris Baker is that he kind of flies under the radar. But I remember chatting to a colleague who's in the financial industry. And he was saying we should have the gold price, the dollar rand price, and then the Naspers price. So he's built this huge, important company, which is kind of instrumental in all our retirement funds. Or if you're invested in any big fund, Naspers is really like a big commodity there. Why did you think it was important to write this particular book? So Chris has a track record of being a success even before he joined Naspers mm. as CEO in 1997. Mm. So before that, he started Mnet. So mm. he is a straight-up entrepreneur that built something from scratch, you know, with a team and with the right backing and bringing back an idea from somewhere else and applying it to the South African mm. situation. But still, he built something from scratch. Mm. What he did with Naspers is he repositioned it mm. to benefit from certain other trends, the rise of China, the rise of the internet, you know, those things now seem obvious. But in the late 90s, they weren't so obvious. I mean, it was really a gung-ho approach to go to what was then a frontier market in China. So, you know, the reason I think this book needed to be written and, you know, Kuis specifically, what if we don't retain that knowledge and we don't learn something from it? Mm. And also, do South Africans really know what they're invested in? Mm. So Tencent is Naspers' big investment. Mm. It's in China. It is an entire digital ecosystem mm. of everything. It started as a chatting app, which looks more like Mixit or, you know, yeah, an early WhatsApp than, than now. But do we even know that this is what we're invested in? Because Naspers' value is mostly represented, overwhelmingly represented by what happens in China. The most interesting part, I think, of your book is that it's actually kind of like biography, if you will, of Naspers, the company, and what it's gone through in the various phases. And you, it brought back a lot of memories of early day Mnet. Yes. Why did that business particularly interest you as well, separately from Crows? Yeah, so, so Mnet to me was, it had this amazing influence on the cultural life in South Africa to some extent. And it really was, you know, it was a signal that, that South Africa is changing. Mm. It was founded in the mid-1980s started broadcasting 86 it started gaining traction 87 88 89 it started breaking even Mm. getting profitable and listed on the stock exchange in the early 90s but it was one of the first places where you would see people of different races on the same screen at the same time presenting and you know today we take that for granted but in the mid 1980s this was revolutionary Mm. it was something it was something different completely and the cultural impact i think it had is something that we shouldn't underestimate. And certainly, 
you know, the follow through and, and the positive, you know, it, it, it circles out wider and wider. That's the thing that we, you know, it was the start of something different and maybe the start of a new South Africa that couldn't be imagined in the mid-1980s. Mm. But it was behind a paywall, so it was also a good business. Absolutely. That's the other thing. You've got subscribers and numbers, and you've got fixed costs at a certain level, but the more and more subscribers you get, the better the business does, the more profit it makes. So mm. it was both. It was. And we've seen NASPA's peak. Do you think that its future is brighter than it has been in the past, or do you think that its better days have kind of passed or its best days? So uh, I'm not a financial advisor, so I cannot give you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so NASPA still has a large stake in, in Tencent. It still earns dividends from that company. As long as Tencent and China you know, run this trajectory of, of growth going forward, I think NASPA is in a very good position. But we've also seen in the last few years how they're redeploying some of the money that they've made out of Tencent, whether in dividends or whether selling slivers of that stock, to redeploying it into other businesses. They are now betting on food delivery, in online, on online payments, on electronic classifieds and education technology. Literally hundreds of billions of rands are being redirected to these businesses where they hope to find probably the next Tencent. So... I think if you are brave, you'll be. Uh, you should sit and and you know sit in, step in for that ride and see whether they do find the next ten cent. You just don't know. Remember, it's a tech stock, and tech stocks are. You know, it, it, if you can look at Facebook or Google or well, now special ten cent share price over the last five years, it's not a straight line going this way or that. It looks more like a heart monitor when going up and down, and it's, sometimes it needs a shock get going again yeah thank you tj stradom he's the author of curse becker's billions it's definitely worth reading as a south african investor i think people underestimate how important curse becker is curse becker's billions is published by penguin random house and it retails for 287 rand you are the new day you are the new day If you can but prove to me You are the new day Send the sun in time for dawn Let the birds all hail the morning Love of life will urge me say You are the new day when I lay me down at night, knowing we must pay for Tucker that this night might stay yesterday. Thoughts that we as humans know could slow worlds and end it all. Lie around me where they fall Before the new
was You Are The New Day, sung by the King's Singers. All the tracks in today's show are about new. To celebrate the launch of this new Publisher's Choice show here on Fine Music Radio, featuring Penguin Random House today. If you miss any of the book titles, reviews or interviews on today's show, you'll be pleased to hear that we load the podcast of the show to our website, fmr.co.za, directly after the show, so you can download it there. I'm going to hand over now to Beryl Eichenberger, who's bringing us a review and an interview. Let's start with the review. It's of a book called That Green-Eyed Girl by Julie Owen, and this too has been published by Penguin Random House, our publisher's edition partner today. Welcome to the show, Beryl. It's hard to believe that some 70 years ago, being gay was hidden from sight, forbidden and illegal, with jail or electric shock treatment if you were caught in unnatural activities. In the United States, McCarthyism in the 50s painted a tortured picture and fed into the hands of those driven by hate. Marriages of convenience masked the real passion of some individuals, living a lie for the sake of convention. While LBGQTI plus is so part of our lexicon today, it's an important part of our education to understand the struggles of being who you really are and living a life of honesty. Julie Owen Moylan in That Green-Eyed Girl has written a poignant historical novel set in New York spanning the 1950s to the 1970s. It is written with empathy, taking a strong feminist angle right into the heart of the characters. It's a story of shame. Moylan reveals much of this as she tells the story of two teachers, Dove and Gillian, living in an apartment in downtown New York in 1955. As a lesbian couple, they lived in fear of discovery, so pretense was a part of their lives, shame for being the people they are, in a prison without bars. We pretend the hiding is nothing, but it's everything. We can't touch or kiss or stand too close to each other. We can't look lovingly at the other person or talk too much about them to a friend. We have to rehearse and monitor and check, always check, on what we say or how we say it, as Dove says. It's a story that connects time frames, and the secrets that hide in apartments from tenant to tenant. Haven't you ever wondered what the walls of your home might say of their previous occupants? Twenty years later, in 1975, we meet teenage Ava, living in that same apartment with her mother and father. Her mother is suffering a mental breakdown, wandering off and continually muttering phrases that seem to haunt her. Her father has found a girlfriend and is rarely at home, and Ava is in the middle, a child on the cusp of adulthood with her own needs and desires. When her mother is sectioned into a psychiatric hospital, shame is the burden that Ava carries with her. A parcel arrives from Paris, addressed only to the apartment number, and Ava seeks to discover who should be the recipient. Why would there be a photograph with liars slashed across it? What do the other mementos mean? She slowly but surely follows a trail to uncover the woman the parcel was destined for and the woman whose jealousy and vindictiveness 
has travelled once a year into Ava's present. Moira gets under the skin of this teenage girl as she views each clue and seeks answers. Logic reigns as she takes each careful step into a story that will lead back into her own life as the links click into place. She has produced a beautifully paced novel, well-researched with vivid scenes of the 50s and the fear of being your truth. While the world is a different place from that time, it is still not unusual for people to hide behind their masks of conventionality. Wholly satisfying, it will delight and anger and bring you to tears. This is a novel that has an excellent place in understanding the history of LGBTQI+, living a secret life, fear of being discovered, and the price one can pay when one person discovers the truth and holds us to ransom. The Green-Eyed Girl is by Julie Owen Moylan and is published by Michael Joseph. Beryl has been an extremely busy reader this month. She also delved into Mad Bad Love by Sarah Jane King. And the author joins her now in the FMR studio to chat about this, her second memoir, published by NB Books. Sarah J. McQuala King's first book, Killing Caroline, revealed much of herself in the most honest and engaging way. It's always risky being up front and in your face, but SJ has endeared herself to all of us as a top talk show host and by telling her story opened channels for people to talk about their mental challenges. Mad Bad Love is the second part of her memoir, and perhaps a tough read, but SJ has the ability to put into words what many of us are too scared to admit. Exploring why we follow patterns and what makes some of us repeat destructive behavior requires the bravery of diving beneath our personal surface, often into the depths of pain to understand. How fabulous to have you in the studio, I'm Sarah so Jane. Oh, I'm Thank going to call you, you SJ because we call you. We all call you SJ. So it's a very warm welcome from all of us, and definitely for our book choice listeners. Let's start with the title because you qualify it with a very powerful tagline. But it wasn't always going to be that title, and I sort of laughed out loud at that. So can we talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So the title, the working title was, and I'm always so mortified to say it because it's, it's awful, although it did turn up as a chapter. It's still a chapter in the book, but it was fine, F-I-N-E, which, and I won't give the full because it, <laughs> but effed up, insecure, neurotic and emotional, which is a real kind of recovery saying. And Melinda Ferguson, my publisher, and I also, she's in recovery, we'd kind of used it as a working title, but I could tell neither of us were that keen <laughs> she became less and less keen I could tell that as, as time went on and then I was writing one day a chapter uh, the chapter I think is called Enver and I wrote about and I wrote a line and it said da 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 mad bad love and I went oh that picked, it. that's it well I picked up the phone to Melinda and I said what do you think mad bad love and she said in her own inimitable style and again I shall paraphrase I effing love it yeah and so and I effing love it too <laughs> and maybe we just need to explore that because you've mentioned Enver and not everybody knows that the book is basically about your love affair with Enver and passages of it and the addiction your addiction his addiction and so much destructive behavior but yeah. your through all that now which is wonderful I wouldn't say the book is about Enver and I I think the book is about me and one's exploration of self and, mm -hmm. and how yes. but that relationship becomes sort of the 
the thing on which to pinpoint all the other things. Yes. There was so, and, and you know, as you said, the tagline tag is, and how the things we love can nearly kill mm-hmm. us. I could have picked any number of my addictions and problematic behaviours on which to pin the mad, bad love, because it doesn't just apply to my intimate relationship and personal relationships. Sure. Enver became a very obvious thing and a very present thing. The proximity to what, what I write about is a lot closer than the things I was talking about in Killing Caroline. So, yeah, he he's in the book, but it's still me. It's a tough read, I have to be honest. And But it is so in your face. It's so authentic that I there, there were nights where I was really, like, glued to it. How do you feel now it's out in the open? I think people ask me that a lot, and they ask about, you know, and the vulnerability and the honesty. Mm. The honesty. That isn't something that, for me, as a recovering addict, 15 years clean and sober now, the vulnerability and honesty isn't really a thing. I have to be vulnerable and honest with myself every day in mm-hmm. order to keep my sobriety. Sure. Right, so that element... Not, not really. Just the 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 feat of having done it as the mother of a toddler with two jobs and 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 <laughs> that. Uh, how 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 do I feel relieved? <laughs> relieved. And I look at it every day. And actually, that writing it was sort of an act of self love in terms of I had to carve mm. out time for SJ to do this thing I really wanted to do, and it's hard as a working mom to do that. So. I'm thrilled it's out there. I'm thrilled I did it again. I didn't know I could do it again. You know, difficult second album and all that. I didn't. I thought Killing Caroline was a huge fluke. Oh, God, no, it was wonderful. But we, we need another interview on that. <laughs> so, but what I, one of the things I, I mean, I loved your humour. There were some Monty Python-esque sort of moments in there. <laughs> but I think the thing that struck me, and we're so short of time that we, we need an hour for this. But and, anyway was the day you understood when you met Paul Sunderland. Yeah. Paul Sunderland is a psychotherapist who works in London. For years, he's worked as an addictions counsellor. And I was about two years clean. I'd gone back to England and I attended a lecture and he was hosting this lecture. And it was about the link between adoption and addiction. And I had never understood that there was ever a link Mm. between those two things. And what he did was he changed my entire perspective on why I was the way I was. And he spoke about what happens when adoption trauma is what he spoke about and we don't speak about it an awful lot because people don't like to speak Mm -hmm. about it because it's inconvenient but he spoke about the primal wound and he spoke about the impact that that severance between mother and baby even as young as seven weeks as I was when I was given up for adoption how that although it's not something we can remember it's something that can be recalled Wonderful. Lastly, is this a love letter to your daughter? Yeah, it it is. One day she will perhaps want to read it. I hope there won't be any (gasps) moments for her because we live in a very open household and we explore, we talk about things that affect us. But yeah, it is a love letter to her. Sarah Jane, thank you so much. Esther, it's always wonderful to have you in the studio. It's always wonderful to speak to you. Thank you very much. And lots and lots of luck with Mad Bad Love. Thank you. You deserve it. It's published by Melinda Ferguson Books, an imprint of NB Publishers. Thank you, Beryl and SJ King. And now for some music. This is Many a New Day from Oklahoma, sung by Joan Roberts. Should a woman who is healthy and strong Blubber like a baby cause her man's gone away A-weeping and a wailing how he's done her wrong That's one thing you'll 
never hear me say, never gonna think that the man I lose is the only man among men. I'll snap my fingers to show I don't care. I'll buy me a brand new dress to wear. I'll scrub my neck and I'll brush my hair and start all over again. Many a new face will please my eye. Many a new love will find me. Never have I once looked back to sigh over the romance behind me. Many a new day will dawn before I do. Many a light lad may kiss and fly. A kiss gone by is by gone. Never have I asked an August sky where has last July gone. Never have I wandered through the rye, wondering where has some guy gone. Many a new day will dawn before I do. Many a new face will please my eye. Many a new love will find me. Never have I once looked back to sigh over the romance behind me. Never have I chased the honeybee who carelessly cajoled me. Somebody else just as sweet as he cheered me and consoled me. Never have I wept into my tea over the deal someone told me. Many a new day will dawn. Many a red sun will Vanessa Levenstein returns to the show now to review The Ink Black Heart, a brand new and always highly anticipated new novel from J.K. Rowling. Welcome back, Vanessa. So, a cartoon about decomposing body parts, a couple of skeletons, a demon and a ghost. How do you explain its success? Wait, is Drek a demon? Oh, you tell me. <laughs> I genuinely don't know. I'm just saying, when you describe The Ink Black Heart to people who haven't watched it, they're kind of surprised it's a hit. Did you expect the reaction to your, uh, let's be honest, very weird animation? No, we definitely didn't. We were having a laugh, and it's basically a bunch of injuries. But it turned out far more people got the joke than we expected. When you say the joke, people read a lot of meaning into the story. Yeah, and we... Sometimes you think, oh yeah, I suppose that is what we were getting at, but other times... Sometimes they see things that, well, not that they aren't there, but that we never saw or intended. Anthony Fridjohn read the lines of a journalist from The Buzz. Josh was voiced by Craig Lowe. I'm Vanessa Levenstein and I read Edie's lines, all characters from The Ink Black Heart, the new strike novel written by Robert Galbraith. 
the pseudonym for J.K. Rowling. The synopsis is simple. Edie and Josh have created a cartoon series, namely The Ink Black Heart, which becomes a huge hit. Meanwhile, an anonymous online figure, Anami, has built a game based on the series. Fandom turns, when in the conversation that we've just read, Edie expresses mild misgivings about the game. Anami's fragile ego is shattered, and with a few clicks and tweets, the sociopathic figure launches an online hate campaign against Edie. Then Edie is murdered, and Josh seriously injured. Cormoran Strike and partner Robin Ellicott are calling to investigate, and the key question is, who is Anami? Loads of characters, places, threats and intrigue follow. My favourite new character, although she only appears a few times, is the 12-year-old, somewhat precocious, smart and empathetic Flavia. Think Hermione in Harry Potter. Flavia has the makings of a detective. Hopefully, we'll meet up with her again in the next book. Now, The Ink Black Heart is over a thousand pages long, and if you're a Strike fan, as I am, that doesn't matter. In fact, it's what you've come to expect. An aching wrist as you get engrossed in all the subplots and the very real internal and external challenges that Cormoran and Robin face. If you're not familiar with the characters, Strike is an army vet who had half his leg blown off in Afghanistan. Robin, who has her own traumatic past, joined the detective agency as a temp and ended up as a partner. They complement each other in temperament and together have built up a successful agency. Will they or won't they admit their true feelings to themselves and each other is a romantic tension that the author teases throughout. J.K., and I'm going to call her that as opposed to Galbraith, has tried to replicate the online world using typography. It doesn't work. There are far too many tweets and long Twitter threads. There are pages dedicated to the online chats between Anami and his or her followers. This means there are often three columns of text. Reading this on a Kindle, depending on your model, proved awkward. My Kindle duplicated the columns, and on some Kindles the text was too small. I'm not sure how this would even translate into audible. Does the narrator read, column one, Morehouse, colon, enemy, should we close the game for a few days? Column two, paperwhite, colon, I've sent you pics. However, if you're reading it from a hard copy, you can skim through these chats much like you would online and don't let this put you off the book. Back to Anami. The name means a lack of moral or societal values. And as the detectives wade through both virtual and real suspects, it's disturbing how many people fit the description. And JK, in true form, keeps you guessing until the end. Much has been written about JK's own experience of being trolled as the impetus for this book. But she negated the saying, sometimes life imitates art more than one would like. And while JK is involved in her own Twitter battles, the issues this book raises are far bigger than one person's experience. Recently in the UK, 14-year-old Molly Russell committed suicide, and an inquest found that harmful online content contributed to her death. Just this weekend, I read that radio veteran broadcaster Jeremy Mansfield cancelled a live Zoom session with his fans after being trolled on social media. 
Mansfield has terminal cancer. The ink black heart is both chilling, entertaining, and in spite of the lengthy online chats, I found it highly readable and I couldn't put it down. If there's one take out, it's this. The online world is not a game. It's become increasingly toxic, and to quote a previous strike book, it can be a lethal weapon. Thanks to Jonathan Ball Publishers for distributing these books in South Africa. We're playing out with What's New Pussycat by Tom Jones. But first, a big thank you to Mwandi Lobi, Ewan Inglis, and the entire FMR team for building the show for us. And to Penguin Random House for joining us for Publisher's Choice this month and sharing all your great new releases. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, Pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and potter your cute little Pussycat nose. Pussycat, Pussycat, I love you. Yes, I do. You and your Pussycat knows. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, Pussycat, you're so thrilling and I'm so willing to care for you. So go and your big little pussycat eyes Pussycat, pussycat I love you Yes, I do You and your pussycat eyes What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, pussycat, Delicious, and if my wishes can all come true, I'll soon be kissing your sweet little pussycat lips. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yes, I do. You and your pussycat lips. You and your pussycat eyes. You and your pussycat. Nose. 